I'd like you to open your Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 5 once again. We'll go back to verse 20 because that's where we ended last week, talking about the law, the relationship of Jesus and what he taught to the law, the Old Testament. I think a lot of Christians view the Old Testament as, as inferior in some way or insignificant. Not really much there to apply today, but I think they fail to see that what the New Testament explains is the Old Testament. The only information they had in the New Testament when the church started was the Old Testament. And the revelation that was coming to the apostles then was what the Old Testament meant. How that we're under a new covenant now. That doesn't mean the old one is done away with so that it has no longer any use. As a means of being right with God, it is done away because nobody could keep it. But Jesus, as you know, I hope you know, it's the most important message in the Bible for Christians other than a couple of others, but you need to know what it really means for Jesus to redeem you and what redemption, how important redemption is and, and how necessary and vital it was and how you were ransomed and bought back by Christ from a life of doom and death. And that didn't have to be done, but God loves you enough that while you were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came for that express purpose of making us right with God because our sins separated us from God. We could talk about God and read about God. We could bring sacrifices to the courtyard and all of that, but our sins remained with us because the law never went away. It was still there looming in front of us as the only means of righteousness that God had provided. He gave us a word. It was holy. He said, do this. And you'll live and you'll be right with the Lord. And man couldn't keep it. Even today we talk about the Ten Commandments. I've already mentioned that. But if you read it and you're honest with yourself, chances are we've broken every one of them. And then we realize, as they did, that there was no provision in the Ten Commandments. There was no provision for forgiveness. It just simply said this is the right way to live. This is what God wants from His people. And we realized that we would break those laws, but there was no way to unbreak them. Just like the person who has shot a gun, you can't get the bullet back. You can't retrieve your arrow once it's let go. The words you've spoken have been spoken. You can't get them back. They have been spoken. We stand guilty of all of our crimes and everything that we've done. You can't blame anybody else. You're not even a victim. You're a guilty sinner. Knowing that, God had a plan, put it into action, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born, lived in a body like us in the world that we struggle with and is adverse to us, and overcame it all. He said in John 16:33 that he had overcome the world. We should be of good cheer because he made it possible for us to be forgiven and for all of our sins to be set aside as far as the east is from the west. He broke down the barrier between God and man and made it possible for a man to have a right standing. One word covers all that. It's called righteousness. That we are made right with God, not because we did something, not because we were able to do anything, but because Jesus did something for us. And upon believing that, we receive that for ourselves. And on that basis, God is able and willing to receive you. Because the question of sin has been paid. 
the fulfillment of the law has been made. Jesus said he came to fulfill it, not to destroy it. Because you'll find, like in chapter 5, the rest of the chapter deals with the Old Testament. Jesus did not say, for example, our verse that we'll get to tonight in verse 22, you've heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, he didn't say then, but I say unto you that that doesn't apply to us anymore. How many of you know that killing is still not what we do? Or that lying, we still don't have, we don't have a right to lie because that was Old Testament. We don't have a right to commit adultery but because that, well, that was Old, Old Testament. That was a Ten Commandments. Still applies today as much as it ever did because it's an announcement of God of what is right and holy. And because he has sent his spirit, he said he will enable you, he will help you, he will strengthen you, he will encourage you. The Holy Spirit comes to guide us into all truth, to lead us in a path of righteousness with God, and so on and so forth. This is the message of the book of Romans, that a man who was not right with God can be right with God through Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is, uh, is what our subject was last week in verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that merits, as I said last week, that merits a lot of serious thought. Because heaven is not an automatic because we go to church. We cannot imagine that God is going to make it easy on us or that now that we believe in God and we go to church and been baptized, whatever, that we are no longer subject to, uh, to whatever he says. We are. We have a life to live. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. There's got to be evidence of that. Because how can you say you are living a right life and right standing with God if there's no evidence of it? We'll get to that in just a minute. But we said last week, we had the question before we came to an end, what was the character of the Pharisees' righteousness? In other words, what was it about them that wasn't right with God? As you remember, the, I gave you two answers. One, their, their righteousness, what, what they saw how they explained that they were right with God more than anybody else was because of external things. They wore certain kinds of clothes. They did certain things. They prayed in the streets, and they made for it like as a pretense. They made long prayers and eloquent this and that, and people said, oh, wow. And people would say, Nobody is more right with God than those people are. Listen to them talk. Look at the way they live. Look at the things they do. They tie their little seeds and they count them out. I mean, wow. But Jesus, you know, Jesus said about these guys, he said, you also outwardly, in Matthew 23, to these Pharisees, he said, you outwardly appear righteous unto men. But inwardly, the thing that motivates you and drives you, to seek this praise and the best seats at the feast and the uppermost greetings and all that. The thing that drives you is praise, admiration, being lauded by others, looked up to. And Jesus said, that's your reward now in this life, not in the next life. Because when you make a proselyte and you make him like you, Jesus said he is twice as much a child of hell as you are. Those are strong words. And a lot of people today don't have a stomach for that. Because everything seems to be changing in this tower, in the, in the world thought and mind and attitude. But the old gospel is the same as it ever was. 
It's not as convenient today to preach it like you might have heard it when you got saved because people are getting away from that. I don't know if it's the new age and a new way of living and, you know, we don't have to do that anymore. They wouldn't have let Jesus today talk about, what was he said, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. Or one, Wow, that's pretty tough talk, isn't it? How could a man of love, how could God who is love say that to anybody? That's the way people would say it today, that using logic and reason to try to convince you that, you know, when Jesus said that, that wasn't, that wasn't very nice, as though God was wrong. But God cannot do anything wrong. And what he said was truth, and truth prevails and so forth. The second thing that about the righteousness of the Pharisees, they were very partial. They did like some, some church groups do. They began to single out or they stressed what suited them, whether it was water baptism or church attendance or tongues or something like that, They the Pentecostal. They singled out things that they majored on and they talked about it all the time. And because they did that with a passion, they considered themselves, and I guess others did too, that they were right. Jesus didn't, didn't say that. He said, it's good for you to do all your little shows, your little tithing, and all the little details you, you do. But you've omitted, remember that? You've omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He said, these you should have done without leaving the others undone. So he, Jesus wasn't impressed with these Pharisees. He said, beware of their leaven, their influence on you. Because, you know, when you get caught up today in man worship or movement worship, some new thing comes along, some new speaker, some new slant, some new something, and people get caught up in that as has to be God to get to following that without realizing how many movements, how many fetishes or fads or spectacular this is or that have come and gone in the last 40 years. You know, my 40-plus years of being a Christian, I, I can remember many, many times that movements came, but they all died and they left people in the wake. Sure, there was good things said in them. Something was said in all of them was good. But the motivation for what they were doing was not because it all died. It promoted people or promoted their church or something more than it did the Lord. Then we said, what is the nature of the righteousness that God requires from us? And simply this, it's faithful obedience unto God and His Word. That is supreme. That's so simple, a child can understand it. What does God want for, from you as one who has been brought out of darkness into His marvelous light and has been planted in His courts and His name and His heart goes and Spirit goes into you? What does He require from you now? To be obedient. Obey. Help me out my voice. And I will what? And you shall be my people. That's pretty simple. And one big word, obey. Obey my voice and I will be your God. Does that mean that if you don't obey, he's not your God? Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And it shall be well with you. That's the promise from a, a God who can keep that particular promise. Faithful obedience is based on two absolutes. One is reverence for God or the fear of God. And the second one is the love of God, a true and honest relationship with God. Now, we finished there last week, and it didn't get finished. There's two or three more things I want to say about righteousness. 
Okay, then, if the righteousness of the Pharisees was for personal praise, and God requires us to be obedient and faithful, then how can this superior, divine, or holy righteousness be obtained? How do we get it? Well, that's very simple, too. I like the simplicity of all of this. I like being simple. I think I was born simple. You weren't. I was. I like that. How do you obtain it? By divine grace. How many of you know that grace means favor? That God does something that nobody else could do, something that if He did not do it, it could not get done. It's grace. All we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous, not a one of us. Nobody could save himself. And your only hope of salvation was if God did something. It's true right now. If you're in here tonight and you've never been saved, you can't save yourself. You can't even be saved by yourself. Nothing you can do. Your best day and your best effort doesn't work. God has to do it. You know what He does? He exercises His grace upon you. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. That is a gift that comes from God. It is something only God can cause. The most eloquent, noteworthy sermon in the world cannot save anybody unless upon hearing of that sermon, God deals with the person's heart and stirs them up to see their sins. I learned a long time ago for lost people, I was thinking about one of my children and all the ways, you know, things I could do to help try to get them saved. And, all. and I thought, you know, there's one thing that I need to do, and that's simply pray this. God, show them their sins. Let them see their sins. It worked for me. And if you really see them, you won't go back to them when He draws you out of them. You won't want to go back. So divine grace is how this righteousness from God is obtained. Remember Jesus said this, You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. And I guess because of my, my beliefs and my personal beliefs, he didn't choose you because you were trying hard. He didn't choose you because you came from a good family. He didn't choose you because you did anything. Because there was nothing you could do that could be choosable. So God does, as I said, he does what he does. You begin to, one day. It happened to me in one morning. It had been building up, but it just came to a head one, one morning in a song. Just as I am, and waiting not, verse 2, to rid my soul of one dark blot. There goes Bonnie. And then a little bit after that I came, but I just began to see it. I saw who I was. I saw who I really was. I saw what I really was. I saw how wicked in my thoughts and intents were because I was using the church to promote myself. I was a basketball coach, and I thought it would be good to be seen in church and be busy and active in the church, and that would help you along the way. And, and it had nothing to do with love for God or interest in God whatsoever. And while I was playing this game of iniquity or self-serving, I, I got saved. Oh, man, I remember that. I'll never forget that. June 30th, 19. At what time? Five minutes to 12. Some of you have already forgotten. <laughs> but that was the morning that I met the Lord, and the Lord saved me. I didn't come to Him because I deserved any, anything. 
Because there is none righteous, not even one. All we like sheep have gone astray. None of us deserved any goodness. None of us. And if God never saved a soul in this world, He didn't have to. He's not compelled to save anybody. But He sent Jesus in order to save. And salvation is what God does, not what I do. It's what He does. And when He draws you out of that miry clay and brings you to Himself and makes you His, He puts something in you that wasn't in there before. You were by nature, Ephesians, Paul said, you were by nature the children of disobedience. You were in your best attempts a criminal before God. And then he does something from heaven. Something came down from heaven and landed in your heart as you repented or in that process. And what came into you was an Old Testament forecast. You were born again. Remember that? Have you ever been born again? I mean, are you a different person today than you were then? Has it remained so? Are you a new creature in Christ? See, this is what God does in this business of how we get this righteousness and how it comes to us. It not only comes by grace, and not only does God choose you. Didn't Jesus say you didn't choose me, but? Can you handle that? Now, I'm serious. Now, you're used to saying amen, but can you handle that, that you didn't choose God, but God chose you? Well, I distinctly remember choosing God. You chose God because He chose you. No man can claim that he was good enough, smart enough, wise enough, or anything else to be right with God. He can only say God did it. He did it because, well, I don't know why. I wouldn't have picked me, and I doubt very seriously if I'd have picked you. If I was one doing the picking, I'm sorry, but it's probably mutual tonight. But he chose me, and I assume that he chose you, and therefore, here we are. Now, how do we manifest this right standing, this new being made right with God? There's a righteousness that comes from being made right with God based on nothing. Are you with me? I didn't do anything. He called me out of darkness into His marvelous light, established my steps, put His heart in me, and there I am. I, not because I did something, but because He did something. He made me right with Him on the basis of nothing I did. Nothing. Now, now that He has made me right with Him, how does He manifest it? Let me ask you a question. Is it necessary if God, if Christ, the hope of glory is in you, is it necessary that it be manifested? You shall know them by their church membership. No, by their choir practice. How do you know? You let your light so shine before the world that others may see your, your new life. You're not trying to do this as much as something in you is propelling you, promoting this life. Something happened to me on one Sunday morning in June when I was 28 years old. Man, what, a, what an age, 28 years old. And something happened that morning I could not explain. I just knew something happened. I couldn't put a name to it. I couldn't... 
describe it. I just knew that that morning I asked God to save me. All I could do was believe that he did. You can't go by feelings because you may feel lost tomorrow. We've all gone through that. But believing is not based on feeling. It's based on fact. He said, I believed, I responded, he did it. And he did, he did it in such a way that everything begins to change inside of you. Your life, your heart, your directions, your choices. The things you once admired, you don't admire. <laughs> the old friends I used to hang around, I, didn't, I couldn't hang around them anymore. They, they begin to say some things about me abandoning them and too good for us and all that. Well, I'm not too good for anybody. I'm not better than they were. I'm just better than I used to be. We had no communication. They wanted to talk about things. I wanted to talk about Jesus. I'd never talked about him before. I'd never had any interest in him before. I didn't know anything about him. Everything I read was like brand new. I thought, why haven't I heard this before? You couldn't hear it before. I mean, this is all spirit-directed. You could have read it through and through while you were lost. You would have understood it. But now that you got saved, you got an appetite for it. You have a flavor for it. You want to read it. I want to understand this. I had a thousand questions. I couldn't read very far in the Bible without writing something down to find out what that means. I wore preachers out calling them. And my preacher left on vacation after I got saved. I called Dr. Poor or Lewis Poor, the Baptist preacher in Charlestown, and uh, went to see him. I had to talk to somebody, I was going to bust. What does this mean? I realized, well, they didn't know a whole lot, but they listened. It was just something on the inside wanted to know more about Jesus. I wanted to give up everything I used to do. I mean, I, I was really, my heart would just walk away from everything. I, of course, I was a coaching, and I, I couldn't do that. But, man, there was just something more thrilling about Christ than anything I had ever known in my life, ever, at any time. I was an adult. I had an adult life now. I was. I had things were different than a kid, but there was nothing that could match the quest to know Him, to know about Him. I'd, I'd wear anybody out that would listen to me by just asking a thousand questions. But my life had changed. Everything became new. The Bible said we should walk in newness of life. This is one of the evidences that something really did happen. I'm glad for everybody that comes forward and does all of that, but I, I'm not convinced anybody is saved until you see the life. But you can't say, well, come back in 15 years and I'll tell you if you're saved. I just take you at your word. That's all we can do. If you say you're a Christian, I'll take you at your word. But, but your life has to be like a shining light. There must be something. Faith without works is dead. Works don't save you. Works are because you are saved. You do that as a result of being saved because this is how you express a new life on the inside of you. You have found, as we sing the song, I have found the new way of living. What did Paul say? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. 1 John 3 says, He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. I mean, we wanted, to, we would learn it, then we'd want to do it. We'd get together, we'd talk. I got bags under my eyes because I never slept after I got saved. I did, but not nearly enough. This quest 
to learn. To know. I don't know how many loaves of bread, pounds of bologna. We would go to somebody's house every week, as I remember. We fellowship twice a week somewhere with somebody. We sit around and we would talk about the Lord until it's far too late in the night, asking questions and trying to get answers. There was a hunger and a thirsting there that I will never forget. A desire to know in whom I have believed and to be persuaded that what he said he really will do because I didn't know very many Christians anywhere who really believed that God would do what he said. You read all these promises and they'd gloss over them like, well, you know, I don't know that's what the Bible says, but, but, I, but me, I think, but what? If he said it, won't he do it? Isn't that what the Bible said? If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he will do it. Because it's natural for a Christian to say, well, if God said this, then obviously he will do it because he watches over this word to perform it in Jeremiah 1. This is what he does. Now, I would be a fool to say that I'm a Christian and then live like he won't do anything in there. Then it's a major thing for me to want to be faithful. God help me to act and live like what you say is true. Help me to make no excuses why I don't do it or why I can't do it. Because you didn't call me to live a life of can't. Can't or can't. Multiple choice. You didn't call me to complain about the way of being too hard, too hot, too cold, because the alternative to where I'm going was the other way, and that was a bad way. And the joy of learning things and going down this road, praise the Lord. This is what happens when, when your life gets changed, because this is how God manifests His righteousness in your life. Your life is changed. You're a new person. And because you're a new person, you live like this. You make the choices you didn't make before, even though they're tough choices and they're going to cost you. Like with friends, I lost all my friends. Oh, I still know them. We still see each other. And every occasion we run into each other and talk a little bit. But, but uh, we can't talk about what's, what I like to talk about because they never met the Lord. Most of them haven't. I'm not sure they even want to anymore. I think there was a time they could have, but I don't know that they want to now. But it was the darling of my life. Still is. There's nothing to me more, more important, more refreshing, more challenging than the Word of God. Just understanding the things you don't understand and getting your eyes open, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens your eyes to see and to have that experience of going, Oh, I see it. Praise the Lord. This is what we call the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Ephesians 1. God gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him. The eyes of our heart are enlightened, and we begin to see what is the hope of His calling and so forth about the saints. And you see things you've never seen before, the possibility of living a life you never thought possible, even cared about before. It now becomes real and becomes possible, not because you're able, but because He is. What he's telling you, he will do. This is what he said, and this is what he will do. God is for us, and he is not against us. First John 3, he said, He that doeth righteousness is righteous. 
So it's a life we live. We do what is right. And the only thing that I can find out that is right is what God said in his word. You know, a second thing that we, that we do is, is that we hate sin. Because if you don't hate sin, you'll go back to it. You'll make excuses why you can't live this life yet and why you're not ready for all of this. Until you hate it. Until you see on that day you got saved and you see what all those fun days and pleasure and foolish things you did in your life trying to please other people have a good time. How often that simply sealed a sentence of doom in your life. Because if you'd have died then, you would have been gone. Then God opens your eyes to see that all your sins, not most of them, not the bad ones, but all your sins have been forgiven. The whole nine yards, your sins have been forgiven. And now he puts into your heart a hatred for sin. I want you to turn, I want to show you something in Second Peter chapter 2, a hatred for sin. Because if you don't hate it, you'll let it hang around. If you don't hate it, you'll tolerate it. You'll get used to it. It's just like bad TV. And most of us that are over, what, 40 can tell you that there was a time when uh, TV was relatively clean. I mean, you might have heard a word spoken occasionally, the, mm, like that. But the innuendos, you know, Ozzy and Harriet. Most of you wouldn't have a clue who Ozzy and Harriet was. But some of those uh, movies were in a red skeleton. You probably would never. Today, it would be very boring, I think, to, the, to a nasty crowd today. Because everything's gotten nasty, vulgar, and dirty. It's not funny unless it's got dirt in it. But things have changed. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse... 20. He said, For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. This is not a stagnant life. It's a growing, walking, decision-making life as a Christian. Verse 21 it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that is washed to her wallowing in the mire. What a graphic illustration. Because if you've ever had a dog that vomited, you know what that means. And then the dog made you sick when they tried to lick it. You know, it was, it's the picture that God shows depicting a person who confesses, maybe plays a game, acts like a tin church or something, but doesn't release the other life, doesn't walk away from it, and gradually submits to the pressure of it, to the pull of it, and goes back to it. I don't think I could have lived the Christian life when I was a kid. I don't think I could have lived it through, through college because my deeper yearning was to be accepted and to be like other people were and to have what other people, you know, had and go to the parties and stuff. Even though in my heart I knew that it was wrong, I had no resistance. Well, I could have resisted it, maybe some. I couldn't give it up. I'd go to church every week because I had a lung disorder, and I, and, and I learned later that I was dying until I had it chopped out. But 
I thought maybe I could prolong the, my death by going to church and maybe getting in a few good points. But I could never yield to that tug. Never, ever. No matter how hard I tried, I had to go back to the dorm and face my buddies, my pals. None of them were saved, and they would not tolerate having a saved friend. I could not be around them going to church talking about Jesus and be their friend. It just doesn't work that way. The devil doesn't want you in the crowd. doesn't want that kind of an influence. He says here, the dog turned back to its vomit. What an illustration. And the sow that was brought out of the pig lot, scrubbed down, nice-looking pig. And when the pig got a chance and got away from all of this goody, clean stuff, they went right back to what they really had in their heart, and that was a good old nasty pool of mud. And that's what sin is like. That's the picture I think we're supposed to get here. But if you don't hate this, if people don't hate it, this is what they what you do. You go back to it. You got to hate your sin, and then you got to have faith in God for one's provisions. That's another thing that you have to do. This is the way it works. Now, finally, before we go on tonight, who will enter into God's kingdom? Do we who are born again and who attend church but never really live the life but just do enough good things is, is this who makes it i mean how do we how do we assure ourselves or find this assurance of our salvation that we're going to be in heaven revelation 17 and verse 14 it says this they that are with him this is the picture that john saw in heaven when the saints were with jesus this is the way they described it. They that were with him in glory are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. The called, he called us out of our out of darkness. Have you heard the call in your life? Any of you? Have you experienced a call to come to the Lord? You're the called. And the chosen. Many are called. If you're chosen. You see, I believe in predestination. I believe you were chosen from the foundation of the world. Before you ever were, you were. And then he talks about the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Because if you are called, if you are chosen, it will be seen in your faithfulness. Not in some structured duty, you know, I'm a good church person, but just faithful in everything that he shows you. Faithful to turn around from this and give up that and no longer go this way, no longer talk that way, no longer do. I mean, just your life changes because of the effect of the influence. God shows you this is the way walk you in it, and you make a decision. You must be willing and Isaiah said, if you be willing and you shall eat the good of the land. So he shows us the right way to go, does he not? Do we not then have to make that choice? Just like God sends the Holy Spirit to help us not to do it for us. He encourages and he can, he can get our attention for sure. This is the way walk ye in it. That's a choice you got to make. A lot of people know they should and they don't, but then they excuse themselves by saying, well, 
I don't think I'm ready for that. And they put that on the shelf. You put nothing on the shelf when God brings it to you. It'll spoil. God doesn't even have to speak twice. Speak once is enough. All we like sheep have gone astray. God owes lost sheep nothing until Christ comes. And then he begins to, what he chose in the foundation of the world, he begins to exercise his grace and his power and his loving might upon lost people to convict them, convince them, and to draw them out. And when he does, they stay out because his people will do that. Amen. That's the way it works. So who enters into his kingdom? Those that are brought out, the called, the faithful, and the chosen. Now, tonight I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in verse 21, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill is in danger of the judgment. Thou shalt not kill. But Jesus said, But I say unto you, I say unto you, that if you're angry without a cause... Is it right to kill? Is it ever wrong to kill? Now, you see, you've got to think about this because this is a passionate argument today in the church and in the world about killing, taking of another life. How many times did God tell his people in the Old Testament to go and destroy the Amalekites, the Habites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites, and all the other icks, and all the other ticks? He said, go and destroy them all. Everything, all of them. There was even a time that God himself caused fire or rocks to fall from heaven and kill a bunch of people. Now, do we believe in killing? It's in the Old Testament. They did that under a theocracy. God led his people that, that way. You know what he told them? He said, all these people in the land, all the folks that we're dealing with here are heathens. They've all turned away from God. They're all abomination. Their practices are abomination. Their life is abomination. Their religion is an abomination. They have all turned away. Therefore, I'm giving you the land, but you must rid the land of all these people. Have no mercy, spare none of them, spare nothing. You know, that had to be hard. Spare nobody, lest they become thorns in your side and pricks in your eyes. If you leave them there, they will be snares to you in your life there. What about that verse he says about thou shalt not kill? Is it wrong to kill? It's an ethical and a moral question. Is it ever right to kill? What about the just wars in earlier times? Augustine wrote of just wars. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote of just wars. They even had rules of engagement. And you should war only as a last resort. And if you do war, don't overwar. Now, those are my words. <laughs> if you take prisoners, treat them kindly. That is, don't, don't abuse them. Because as a Christian, a Christian nation, so-called, we should use Christian principles in going to war. But there's a lot in the Bible about war and killing also. 
that killing is not right. Killing never was right. And it's not a thing for Christians to do in the new covenant because we're under a new covenant and not an old one. Now, back, back to verse 21 again. He said, you have heard that it was said by them of old. Now, here he takes us back to the Old Testament, showing clearly that he's not doing away with it, but explaining a deeper meaning of it. He said, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But he said, I say unto you. He said, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what he said. Angry. Angry to the point that you're willing to take another person's life. Is it ever right? Is it ever justifiable? Is it ever a thing that you can say, well, I did this and, and uh, it's okay to do because my government gave it to me to do? Is there such a thing as a just war? Is there such a thing as killing another man and not being a murderer? See, the, the word for kill, thou shalt not kill, the word is murder. We don't have a right under the new covenant to do that. We're to pray for uh, our enemies. That doesn't fly well in a militant age. We are to turn the other cheek. If they smite us on this on one cheek, we turn the other cheek. If they humiliate us and call us names, we, we simply take it. That doesn't mean that if somebody came into my house was going to try to kill me, that I just said and say, okay, do it. I would try to keep that from happening. I would attempt to keep somebody from destroying my children or my wife. Not because I hate somebody, not because I'm mad at somebody. I just simply don't think I'm ready to die right now like this. And I would like to stop and cause to cease this attempt at taking my life if I can. I remember one time in the other church building that uh, we were in, uh, I was in a church building on a Saturday night about, oh, 12.30. It was pretty late because I used to set up late and finish in the sermon and set up as late as I could to keep it fresh so I could be ready in the morning. And all of a sudden, I heard the window get kicked out in the women's bathroom, one of those kind of windows that are glassy with little wires in it. And I was sitting there. I thought I heard somebody kick it once, and I got up. I walked out the hallway, and all of a sudden, it just, wow, and a whole, it sounded like a whole wall fell in. Now, I am instantly got two questions. Now, what are you going to do, and how are you going to do it? Are you going to hide behind this door and find you a stick or something, or are you going to get out of here and go find the police? That's what I did. Now, somebody can say, well, you scared the cat. Look, I have no right, even though it's, been difficult to live this way <laughs> in our life. I have no right to harm another person. I try to keep another person from harming me. I would try to keep another person from harming my children or, if possible, my property. But I would like to think that not at the expense of taking their life. I would like them to think I would take their life. I would like for them to be real convinced, this guy's crazy, he's going to hurt me. And then leave, and then sit there and shake and go, boy, that was close. I would rather do that than to allow somebody to just 
come in and, and, you know, hover over your kids while they cut you in two or shoot you or something. I don't think the Bible teaches us that. It just simply says you, you are harmless as doves. Remember that? That we're not people who get involved in fighting and name-calling. And The New Testament, the New Covenant is different. It all comes down now to your obedience to Jesus Christ, how you relate to Him, how you trust Him, how do you see your defense is in Him, how you see your tomorrows are in Christ, that His Word, that His Spirit opens up to you is what you're to stand on and what you're to trust in and what you're to rely on. And this is what He wants. And a lot of people think that it's okay to kill if, you know, if it's a just war, for example. I can pull the trigger and adjust war. You know, that's, a, that's not a question that can be easily answered. If an enemy, a barbaric nation comes against you to kill all your people, do you have the right or the spiritual duty to take up arms and defend yourself? And if you say no, then every veteran is mad at you. If you say yes, you can't prove that. And a lot of people say, when I went to the army and I was engaged in warfare, I didn't hate my enemy. I was just obeying my country. Therefore, without malice, I slew this guy. And I sent him to hell early. But I, I didn't have anything against him. As opposed to guys that have seen torture, uh, some of their friends or their fellow military people, they found them tortured and, and hurt and maimed or dead and their heads cut off or something. And they were so enraged that from now on when they encountered the enemy, it was more on the border of hate. Now, you can't prove that, but they, you know, there was a time in the war with the Japanese on some of those islands, they didn't take very many prisoners. There were a lot of them. They just didn't take them. I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened to them. But see, there was this murderous spirit that comes out. You're armed. you got a gun. It's legal. You're called to do this, to win the war for your country, and so you shoot and you kill, and that's what you're trained to do. And you have to ask a Christian under the new covenant, is that okay? You see, the word kill means murder. Same word, thou shalt not murder. Somebody says, well, murder is to kill with malice, to have intention of malice and harm, to do somebody evil. And so that's not what I'm doing. I'm in this war just to help my country survive and so forth. And so they, they take it that way. And consequently, they do what they have to do, even though their conscience throughout the rest of their life will bother them. I saw a, a little piece on the military channel one night about a chaplain's. I always thought it'd be nice to be a chaplain, that I'd give up what I'm doing if I could be a chaplain. But I want to be where the action is so I could talk to these guys that are, their lives are in jeopardy every hour, talk to them about the Lord, because that's a captive audience. Years ago, I used to meet down in a Methodist mission in Louisville on 4th Street, upstairs in this building on the second floor. They would bust these soldiers in from Fort Knox each week. And I happened to be one of the two or three preachers that got to go over there twice a month, I guess, and preach to these soldiers that are about to go to Vietnam. And I found they, it was a totally captive audience. I kept thinking, where have you all been all my life? I mean, they held on to every word. They listened to every word. It made you be careful what you said and to say it with passion. Because these, these fellows, a lot of them, are not going to come back. You wanted to tell them the truth about eternity and about life. It's, it's a little too late to tell them that they can't take up arms to defend themselves. 
Because, you know, when it comes to your enemy, the Bible says you turn the cheek. That's about as popular as a pork chop at a Jewish festival. <laughs> but the truth is the truth. And a lot of men that pulled the trigger sent the projectile on the way, and you can't change what happened. When somebody died and somebody died without Christ because you ended their life, there's nothing you can do about that. But you were doing your job, you thought, at the time, but it seemed like that conscience comes into play with these young men at some point. Was it right for me to do this? Was it okay? I'm only doing what my government tells me. And you think, well, your government has no conscience. You do. The government consists of 300 million consciences. We have some big and difficult decisions to make. And no man who, takes, who makes a decision to be to, of non-resistance is not very popular in this country. He's called a yellow belly and all of those kind of things, which is the price you're probably going to have to pay for all of that. But it's what you do. It's the way it works. This one program I saw one night was a room full of young soldiers. And they couldn't have been much over 20, 25 and they were all there listening to the chaplain. And the one question that they kept asking was, am I wrong to kill? Is it wrong for me to kill? I'm sure these guys, most of them weren't church people. I'm sure that wasn't in their heart to do all those kind of things. But mm, they were sure bothered by it. They surely were. They, were. they were troubled by the fact that what they were doing was causing the end of other people's lives. And so they, the question came up, is it wrong to kill? The Bible says that thou shalt not kill. But we know that in the Old Testament, they did kill. Is capital punishment wrong? Do you believe God exercised capital punishment against the Jebusites, the Havites, and all those other ites and nicks and ticks? Was that, is that what God did? It is what he did. But you see, it wasn't done because of our anger or the Jewish, the inhabitants of the land. It wasn't done because they were angry at the people whose land they were going into. They didn't even know them, never met them. So they couldn't be mad at them. But they were commissioned to go in and kill them all. Spare none of them. Now that was under a theocracy in the Old Testament. And that's what they were given to do and that's what they were called to do. But that doesn't mean that in the New Testament, under Christ, under grace, that we still have the same thing. Now, there are plenty of people to do the fighting. There are plenty, plenty of people to pull the trigger, do whatever it has to be done, it, it, like in a civil society. I believe in capital punishment. I do. I'm not going to pull the lever. I'm not going to hit the button. But I do believe that, it, that, that a just sentence against people uh, who deserve to be capitally punished ending their life I think it's I think it's a biblical thing I believe it's right but it's not for a Christian to do that because there are other there are plenty of unsaved people in the world to do all of those things and we don't have to do those those things you see we're called to live a life that very few people are willing to live a life that is in concert with all that Jesus taught because that's who we're following and he taught us a lot about our neighbor. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, didn't he? He's, and he taught us, if they smite you on one cheek, to turn the other cheek. 
that you're to guard the door of your mouth and watch the words that you speak because sometimes the words you say are evidence of anger and murder. How many believe that if you have anger in your heart, it's as though you have murdered somebody? He said, verse 22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekah, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell far. Who are you talking about here? You're talking about people and looking down and belittling people, using names to, just to describe them. That's not Christian. We do it all the time. We hear it on the news and TV and, and popular comedians do this stuff all the time. And everybody thinks, oh, man, that's so funny and so forth. Well, that's not what a Christian ought to do. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. Matthew 19, he said, thou shalt do no murder. Murder is the killing of another human being without malice. Because there are there are times that people die because of an accident Accidental shooting, a wreck on the highway. People are murdered because of, well, somebody else got in the way. There's all kinds of ways that, that lives are taken and that people die. But uh, the murder of an innocent person by somebody else is murder, especially if it's malice. I plan to kill somebody. I intended to kill you. I am so angry with you that I want to kill you. How many of you know that anger can lead to murder? If you're angry enough, if you're mad enough, you get somebody mad enough, tore up enough about some passionate subject or event, they can kill you and because they're just driven to do it. Let me go back to something I said a while ago. What about capital punishment? I want to show you something. Turn in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. And verse 14, if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, how many of you know this is planned? If a man comes upon his neighbor presumptuously because he's mad or whatever, angry, getting even, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may what? He may die because a lot of people would run to the altar and cling to the altar thinking that might save me. He said, no, you'll take him from the altar that he may die. Go to Deuteronomy, the next book over. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 11. If any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and fleeth into one of these other cities, he's allowed, these are called cities of refuge. And they could stay there, but if they came out of the, the boundary of the city and the guy who wanted to get revenge caught him outside the city, he could take her life. And he wasn't charged with anything. Murders never, never ceased since the beginning of time. The very first murder, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. I mean, murder has always been the cessation of one life by an act of an act by another. And we don't do that. Accidents happen. Things go wrong sometimes. And, and we fail to do things that we should do the right way. And people get hurt. But we do not live in this life to kill other people. Remember, God said in three times in the Old Testament, He said, let none of them remain. You go in 
And you do what you got to do and let nobody remain. Nobody. Let me just show you one. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 33 and 34. And the Lord our God delivered him from before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at the same time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. Now, I think that would have been hard to do. But God's people were executioners. He sent them in to execute these, these people. I mean, and, and it was just. You can't challenge God with unrighteousness. These were idol worshipers. They had resisted God through the centuries, and they were, they were vile. And God, when he sent his people in, he said, I want you to go into this land. It flows with milk and honey. There's walled cities. And all these different clans you'll find in the land, they're all corrupt. They're never going to be uncorrupt. They're going to be like this, and if you let them remain with you and live with you, they will corrupt you, and they did. So he said, when you go in, I want you to spare nobody. Let not your eye pity any of them. Destroy them all. Now, some would say, well, that's not murder. That was just fulfilling the sentence of God, which you'd have to agree with that. Otherwise, you're going to charge God with murder. But God simply said, these people, I'm going to eliminate these people, and he sent his people in as the executioners, and they did that. As I said earlier, God helped them. He threw down fire from heaven, stones from heaven. The earth opens up and swallows up a bunch of people. In the Red Sea, what happened to all the Egyptians when they tried to follow through the Red Sea? The water closed over on them. Well, did God favor the Jewish people more than the Egyptians? Duh. (laughs) Of course he did. God chose one in the beginning, chose one group of people for himself, one. Those were the Jews, the least nation in the world. He chose a nation out of a nation. They were in Egypt as slaves. They were brickmakers, pyramid builders. <clears throat> and while they were that lowest class of any human beings on this earth, God made those people his own. He took nobodies to make somebodies out of them. These were the people of his choosing. He could have done that with anybody he wanted to, but he didn't. He chose these people. With that mentality and that kind of a mindset, that's why they were so hard-headed and stiff-necked and stubborn. And finally, only those 20 and under were able to make it into the promised land. And when they went into the promised land, he said, you're my executioners. We're going to cleanse the land. Judgment is coming on all these Hittites and Hivites and so forth. And he sent them in to do that. And you know that that is not wrong because that's God cannot do any wrong. So whenever he does this and whenever these things happen, you realize that God is just and fair in whatever he he does. When it comes to the New Testament, we, we read this because this is how God feels about sin. Now, you come to the New Testament and things do begin to change. Like in the Sermon on the Mount. He deals with the law here. And what we're dealing with now, he deals with the, with the law. The rest of this chapter deals with the law. He deals with it tonight about, about killing. Next week, it'll be about committing adultery. Then it'll be about putting away your wife, divorce. And then it'll be something else and something else before he ends this, ends this chapter. He comes in and he says to people like us, people get, get used to the law. They get used to religion. 
you get bogged down in familiarity, I guess. And he told these people, he said, Now you have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill. Now, by killing, you mean the act. But he said, But I say unto you, that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are guilty of murder. I'm sure a lot of folks opened their eyes and said, excuse me, would you say that again? I said, yeah. You have heard that it was said. You have been taught from a child the law. You have heard it said that thou shalt not kill. Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't kill your enemies because they read that they did kill their enemies. They got the land. That's the way they did it. Now, Christ comes along and brings a whole new way of living. Things have changed. We read those things to learn something, but we realize that in the new covenant, in a new time, Jesus said, let me tell you something. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you that if you're angry with your brother, Without a cause. It's not wrong to be angry. How many of you know that Jesus looked on anger at the Pharisees, Sadducees? How can you supposed to how you heal on the Sabbath? That man stretched out his arm and Jesus looked on these people with anger at the narrowness of their how their religion had tainted them, destroyed them. You say those kind of things? He said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you have killed. He said, I haven't shed anybody's blood. Yeah, but how many people do you keep talking about all the time of their mistakes that they've made? How many times do you keep talking about, oh, bad so-and-so and I, 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 In fact, some people get around you and you become known for the story you tell against somebody who did you wrong. you got a murderous heart. There was a time in a, another age, if you'd have had that kind of feeling, you could have probably gotten by with murder. Because murder starts with the feelings in your heart, the attitudes of your heart. Well, my government told me, to, I don't care who told you to do it. As a Christian, things are different for you. Amen anyway. They really are. They are different than they used to be. Now, I'm going to end right here, and we're going to pick this up next week about anger. And what do we do with anger as Christians? And is all anger wrong? I just told you that it wasn't, but we'll start there. Because we're Christians. We sing a song, I have found a new way of living. I found a new life divine. This is not a popular life, though we try to make it popular by making it conform to the, the way of the world. But when you get right down to it, our way of living is not something that very many people are even willing to live. Well, let me say it like this. Our way of living is not a way I have met very many people in my life who are willing to live this, this way. And I, I don't know if it's because they don't understand the deeper meaning or they've only been glossed over and have religious ideas or if they've ever stopped to think about the fact that if you have resentment and ill will in your heart against somebody and you wish, ooh, ooh, he said, that is akin to murder. You don't have the luxury of relating to God and thinking like that. And a lot of folks say, I just can't get over it. Well, now the consequence is not good. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you, Lord, to make clear to us the revelation of your word. 
to our heart. Not what I say, not how I say it, but that work of the Holy Spirit whereby you take words and you paint a picture in our heart. I pray that we will see what you're saying, that nobody will believe what I've said because I've said it, but will believe what you show them with words that are spoken so that we may be able to say ourselves that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable unto you, that we're thinking right and we're doing right. I ask for freedom and liberty, Lord, to do this. We thank you for the privilege of being here, of having time to be here, living in a country where we have the freedom to be here. May we take advantage of it. May our growth accelerate in the Lord. And may when we come to the end of our life, may the Lord say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of your Lord. Lord, help us to take all of this seriously. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.